It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you join me and my friend David Campbell for this Rule Breaker Investing Audio Extra. A little bit of fun for your weekend. And we're delighted this time of year, every year at The Motley Fool, to do what we call a Foolanthropy Drive, where you can come and see a new partner of ours, generally a not-for-profit, one that we admire, one that we've gotten to know, and one that The Motley Fool community can come together and support. And of course, for most of us, that might mean a holiday check. And I hope you'll consider that. Although I know we're going to talk a little bit about giving away stock. I'm going to talk about that a little later. But you can also just check out allhandsandhearts.org. You can see David Campbell's creation. You can see ways that you yourself could volunteer. Well, before I get into that too much, let me introduce my guest Maximum Impact. Minimum bureaucracy. That's David Campbell's motto. David has been a technology executive, board member, investment banker, humanitarian field volunteer. This is a very motley life. And for the last 13 years, the co founder of All Hands and Hearts, our philanthropy holiday partner for 2017. He's also the author of two books, most recently, All Hands The Evolution of a Volunteer Powered Disaster Response Organization. I want to welcome David Campbell to the show today. Welcome. Well. Thank you, David. It's great to be here, and uh, we really appreciate uh, Molly Fool's support, both uh, economic support from you and and your your fans, and uh, from the organization itself, and from some of your team who've come out and volunteered on site with us in Houston. And they had a great time with you in Houston. They were very much inspired. Not surprising because the work that you do is so inspiring, not just to the people who volunteer, but of course the people that they're serving in disastrous situations, uh, giving them hope, rebuilding hope, which I know is a big phrase for you. Let me start by asking you, David, what inspired you? You to start all hands? Well, it came uh, not by plan, but by uh, one of those synergistic events. Uh, one, I've had uh, 40 years of running different technology companies. One of them, uh, a company up in Cambridge, Mass., called Bolt, Brannock & Newman, BBN Corp., that had a lot to do with the development of the internet. And when the tsunami happened in December 26, 2004, I was motivated by the thought of, how would you use the internet to help in this largest disaster ever happened in my lifetime? And I went to Thailand and, and helped with a group of people, put up websites and so on, mainly to tell the story out about what was going on there and what might be needed. And what surprised me is the, uh, the fact of a phrase called SUVs, but in this space, it stands for Spontaneous Unaffiliated Volunteers people who saw the need and started coming just to help. And over the next three months, that project did tremendous things to rebuild fishing boats and rebuild homes and so on. And I thought it was a one-time event. Then eight months later, Katrina hit the U.S., and several of us who'd been together in Thailand realized that everything we had learned in Thailand was relevant. And so we incorporated as a 501c3 that weekend and literally went from not existing to five weeks later having over 200 volunteers living in a church building in Biloxi, Mississippi. And it's all I've done ever since. Wow. Um, before we go forward, I have to ask you a little bit of a BBN question because I remember was that was your company not acquired by America Online? It was acquired by GTE. So BBN, uh, well, we did a major part of building out the networks of America Online in the '94 through '97 period okay. of time, and okay. then we were acquired by GTE as they were merging 
with Bell Atlantic to form okay, Verizon. Okay, got it. I remember BBN because I was on the AOL side, and we were we were an AOL site, and we were AOL shareholders. We were very grateful for the partnership. Uh, BBN really enabled AOL to become America Online in a lot of ways. Well, we that were time. building out that network. It was a big yeah. project for us. That's great. So, David, how does the organization? How do you decide whether a site is right for you? Clearly, Houston was one. Were you also then in Miami? Um, can you be everywhere? How do you triage? How do you make those tough decisions? Number one, we can't be everywhere. We're still a small organization um, with about now about 135 full-time staff and today probably 500 volunteers in the field. So a substantial, but really, frankly modest in comparison to the needs in the world. One of the phrases that I've used in the, in, in the organization was events that overwhelm the community's ability to respond. In the early years after we did Biloxi, we did mostly international projects. The next year we did uh, Indonesia, Philippines, then Peru and Bangladesh. And it wasn't until 2008 we did our first major response within the U.S. out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And ever since then, we've done large, very large number of modest-scale projects in the U.S. after tornadoes, after flooding. And so we've done maybe 60 projects within the U.S. and about 30 internationally. So we're approaching having 100 projects going on. We don't, we don't go to countries where we think a cluster of mainly Western volunteers would actually be dangerous. Be so... So uh, that tends to limit to some extent, but we've done projects in 20 different countries. And today we're in Nepal and Peru, very large projects in both Texas and uh, and Louisiana, and new projects because of this tremendous spate of activity in the last several months, uh, based in the U.S. Virgin Islands and the Florida Keys, and assessment team in Puerto Rico as we speak, and one going to Mexico because of the recent uh, earthquake activity there. Wow. I mean, I'm just guessing that it's much more complex to do this internationally as opposed to domestically that may be the wrong that may be a misconception and you started internationally so if that is harder then you were doing the harder stuff but is it what how do you assess international versus domestic they're very different businesses and we I refer to them as businesses and we really look at international and domestic are two different sets of rules and issues and then within our each of those response versus recovery because we're very much and as part of the merger we talked about the phrase of being smart response that smart response is not just focusing on the first 30 or 60 days but looking at the two or three year needs of these communities and so we really are those four different business units international response and recovery domestic response and recovery in a, in a way the international are easier because we're generally going into really frankly, underdeveloped countries like Haiti and in Nepal or marginal places like Peru and Ecuador. And there are, frankly, less rules. You, we can get directly into communities that have a great need. And in the international process, much of our current focus is on rebuilding schools because, for example, when the earthquake hit Nepal in April of 2015, in 60 seconds, there were 8,000 schools destroyed. So, in infinite need, it's easy to identify communities that no longer have a school. And as my partner, Petra Nemkova, says, if you don't get a school replaced for four or six years, you've lost a generation of kids that will never have a school. And so, Petra started an organization called Happy Hearts Fund. She actually was in Thailand when the tsunami hit back in 2004. She lost her partner uh, in the tsunami and was injured. And when she went back to thank the people who had taken care of her, was shocked to find that schools weren't being rebuilt. And so she created 
her organization to raise money using her celebrity and, and frankly wonderful personality to raise money to rebuild schools. So we first met in Peru 10 years ago, but then we started working together in Nepal and over the last year decided we could be you know, better together. And so we officially merged the organizations and just announced that four weeks ago. Yeah, so I started by using the phrase "all hands volunteers," but that's not really the phrase these days. Correct. Just the our last new few weeks. Yeah, our, our new name is "All Hands and Hearts Dash Smart Response," and all of those things are important to us. It's important to use the power of the hands, the volunteers who show up. It's you know we really do pay attention to having the heart and wanting to be part of bringing a community back, and we're very focused on the need for really systemic change in the disaster response pace space and smart response is part of that allocating capital to be there for the recovery and doing the recovery as rapidly as you can but also as effectively as you can and so in peru for example the school uh, i was there with petra last month we dedicated was the first new school built in peru after an event that had happened 12 months ago and that school was open within seven months of when you know we started that project and that's important so, uh, and I want to go back there in a sec, but let's step back for one minute. Um, I know you've been a CEO, you were an investment banker, as I mentioned. Um, so, you have a business mind. Um, and as business people, you and I recognize very frequently in the corporate world there are mergers. And, uh, but this is more unusual in the not for profit world. Um, how did the decision come about, and how do finances commingle? What What is the process by which these things merge? It is quite different. And again, in my corporate life, I was involved in more than 30 transactions, either acquiring <laughs> companies or being acquired a couple of different times. So, I was very familiar. And there's a very simple motivational system in the capital markets to combine things. Not doesn't That doesn't exist in the not-for-profit space. Um, so, we were both financially strong organizations. We both had you know several million dollar plus in, on our balance sheet. And but we were working together and recognized, frankly, to some extent, Petra presents and accesses a different community of donors, and we bring the ability to commit to a schedule of delivering a result, like building a school. And when we're building a school, we look at it as we really do three things. Number one, we end up with a physical product, like a, a earthquake-resistant, safe school that probably will also become the center of a small community. Number two, when a, a, a group of volunteers come into a community that's had tremendous loss, it's of great psychological benefit to them to see the outside world coming to help them. That's important. And honestly, I think the most important thing we do is the impact on the volunteers, who in our theoretically connected space, we don't have people connected to each other the way we might want them to be. And when our volunteers live in a village in Peru or Haiti or Nepal or anywhere and actually work with the people in those communities, they get a bond with the community of respect and affection and mutual support that creates space unlike really almost anywhere else in the world of, of people united by purpose and doing something for someone else. And those are very powerful forces that I think honestly are needed in our world. You bet. And the phrase that I led off with and that you use on your website, maximum impact, minimum bureaucracy. Can you give me an example of each of those? We have tremendous trust in our people in the field. In the early days, when you know I was running the organization and also doing the fundraising, it would be fundraising. It would be one person's decision on the field. You could see the need. You could buy more chainsaws, get more vehicles, f approve the materials to you know tarp a house, and so on and so forth. And so from that beginning. At each of the projects that we have, we have tremendous confidence in the individuals on that project. And we have a very interesting unfair advantage. If 
I'm running a project in Nepal and I have 75 volunteers working, I'm getting a free opportunity to uh, meet potential new employees who are going to live with us for weeks or months. They would love to have an entry-level position in our organization. Right. So we get to see people like no corporation ever does. We mm -hmm. see them work. We see them interact. And after three projects, and we all know that, uh, you know, Margaret is a wonderful person interacting, and then we offer her an entry-level position. So all the people in the organization have basically come up initially as volunteers, and we really know them well before they get to join the yeah, organization. Bet. So therefore, we put tremendous trust in the people at that local project to make decisions about pace, about economics, and that allows us, I believe, to continue growing as long as we can maintain the culture at really the project level. So, obviously, David, you're not the only one doing this kind of work in the world, and that's good news, right? Because we want as many people there for disaster relief and response as, as possible. How do you differ from somebody, let's say, like the, the American Red Cross or other organizations that are dealing with disaster relief? Well, number one, the demands created by disasters are significant, and they're increasing rapidly. The total number of people impacted by disasters has doubled in the last 25 years, partly because people are moving you know, to urban areas on an international basis, partly because of climate change, increasing the amount of flooding, and so on and so forth. It's very important to look at how organizations define their actual mission. So, but the, the actual responsibilities of the Red Cross are to do things like provide temporary shelter immediately after a major event, provide food immediately after a major event. They don't have a responsibility to rebuild schools, for example. That's not in their mission. So it, it would be important to understand the whole tableau of disaster needs. For example, there's tremendous media coverage immediately after an event but the recovery activity is two, three, five, seven years long. As we know, New Orleans was recovering after Katrina for more than 10 years. There were still need, homes needing recovery. So it's important for donors to think about, where do I want my support to go? Do I want it to be in shipping cartons of water to people in the first 30 days? Or do I want it to be helping people in Houston return to their homes uh, over the next year? We're re recovering homes in Louisiana that were flooded starting in March of 2016. And, and there are people that haven't been able to remove to the, move back into their homes in it's almost two years. So part of our motivation is to get people back into their homes so you can hold communities together. So the disaster space has great needs, has multiple players. I think it's important to pick trustworthy players, and, and we advise people to go to things like Charity Navigator and GuideStar and services like that. And we've always been frugal, and so we get great ratings, but partly because we're living in the community, we're very, very cost-effective, and we're directly engaged with immediate impact. Well, I'll certainly be donating, and I'm going to donate appreciated stock, because that's the way that I like to give. And we've talked about this certainly before. My Rule Breaker Investing listeners will know that that's the most efficient way that I've found so far to give. There are some really interesting other ways, donor-advised funds and those kinds of things. And David, you might want to speak to that. But at least for me, I'm going to be finding one of my stocks that has run up really well over the years, and I'm going to find some shares of that, send them off to hands.org, and know that that money any capital gains tax I would have paid is forgiven, and so all of the money that you give from Appreciated Stock reaches your organization. Well, and I would second that, David. I've funded my donor advised fund with Appreciated Stock, too. There's two other things that occurred to me. One, uh, for people who have 401ks and are past the age of 70 anyway, that they can give up to $100,000 a year directly from their 401k to a not-for-profit 
to use the tax code that is a 501c3, and that has no compensation implications at all. That's still in the current code. More significantly, with the impending changes to the tax code, it may be worthwhile for people in 2017 to think of setting up a donor-advised fund with a gift in 2017, which would be deductible, and then you could give from the donor-advised fund several years in the future just in case you may no longer be able to get charitable deductions under the new tax law. So even if people have a more modest donation abilities, 5000 20000 putting money into a donor-advised fund in 2017 to get the tax deduction this year may be a prudent step. So, of course, consult your tax professional, and we all have our different situations. A donor-advised fund is not something we regularly talk about on this particular Motley Fool podcast, but again, as I'm a Schwab customer, typically you can ask your broker about these, and it's a very effective, more convenient way to give, because you just kind of make your one-time stock donation into that fund, and then you just write checks off of that. You don't have to do all these individual, I give you these three shares, and this other guy, I give you 10 shares of this, which can be a little time-consuming. Well, and plus, you could basically pre-fund years of donations. All the donations you might make for the next three to five years, you could put into a donor-advised fund in 2017, be certain of getting a deduction, and then still make your donations over the next five years. So, So, David, you are, again, coming from the corporate world, I'm curious, have you done some work or have you had partners who are public companies today? Are there some companies that you think are doing good work out there? They're for profit, but they're they're partners, they're doing good stuff in the world. Well, we have some wonderful partners, and one of the reasons is they like to have their employees engaged with what we do, as Motley Fool sent a team of people to work with us in Houston, and companies like Southwest, who give us great support for our travel, but then send teams of their people to volunteer when there are particular events, as there were in Texas. Medtronic has been a great partner of ours, and we're looking to partner with them because they have facilities in Puerto Rico where we're looking to launch a project. So, one of the things that we offer to corporations is that your employees can actually come in and live with us and see the benefit of the corporate donations helping communities. And to me, it's like the ultimate transparency. We've always pushed transparency. All our financial reports, our audited reports are on the website. But the ultimate transparency is say, come and live with us. You know, Be on projects. See how we manage. See that we don't waste a dollar. And corporations who want to have employee engagement all Hands and Hearts is a great partner and enthusiastic and open to partnering with corporations for a combination of employee engagement as well as support in an area that has tremendous need. It's interesting to hear you mention those two companies, much admired, especially by Americans, since they're both American companies, and I know there are others too. But throwing a little love to love, ticker symbol LUV, and then of course Medtronic as well. Both, both companies that have been led by people who are very visionary. Correct. Absolutely. And big-hearted, so I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, I guess I have to ask you the rule breaker question as we as we close. This is the rule breaker investing podcast. So, underneath our name is this concept that we don't like conventional wisdom. We like to look at the world as fools and say, you know, maybe we should break the rules of how things are being done in this industry or this context. Uh, and so we often find ourselves. Um, uh, Birds of a feather flock together, David, with people who themselves are visionary, and looked at the world and said, with Robert Frost, this line is on his gravestone, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. They, they have something that they think can be fixed. So, could you, could you briefly either share one angle here, uh, where you've gone after conventional wisdom, or uh, maybe a story, a rule-breaker story? 
Well, certainly the conventional wisdom for people who see a disaster and say, I wish I could help, in most organizations would say, stay home and send money. And since I had chosen to go, to go, I realized that with the right approach and the right platform, individuals can be successful. And the Thailand experience taught me that, and certainly the Katrina, post-Katrina, Biloxi experience. And so the, the breaking of the rule is to... It's not a yes or no, can I go and help? It's find the right vehicle to go and help because there is nothing quite the same as being personally engaged with the people you're helping, whether you're cleaning out a house and the family is going to be able to move back into it or building a school and celebrating that with a community. And so throwing yourself against the need, whether it's after a disaster like ours or helping in a daycare center, I think engagement is an important way to link you know, your soul with your philanthropy and find organizations that you are, are proud to work with and live with and then support them. That's really a double benefit. Well, David, I want to thank you very much for spending a little time with me and my listeners this weekend. A delight to learn more about allhandsandhearts.org, this wonderful charitable organization that you have co-founded. I, You initially founded it, but having merged, you're now a co-founder, and that's just a great story, too. Uh, so, Fools Everywhere, give.fool.com. That's the page you can go to on our website to make a donation. But I also want you to think, and I hope you will think about that, because I'm going to do that myself, but I want you to think as well about volunteering. And David, as we close, could you describe, like, if I raise my hand and say, I want to go to the next place, wherever it is, what is that actual experience like? Well, it's different if you go domestic versus international. And if people go, again, to the website, allhandsandhearts.org, there's a volunteer button, and you click that button, and you can start to get information. And you can go and look through that site onto what's it like on our project in Nepal or Houston or wherever. And and we'll then start the process of looking at your dates and your skills and assign you a bunk bed that you're going to move to. And you're going to live in a community of the nicest, most generous, most purpose-driven people in the world. And you're going to work hard starting early in the morning till late in the afternoon, six days a week, and have the most interesting conversations in the evening with people from all across the world that work together with you on accomplishing a result for someone else. And that's the most powerful and positive and wonderful evening you'll ever spend. Mm. And do I have that opportunity to say, hey, I have this much time, or how does that work? You you can identify one day, and we'll, in places like Houston, we'll actually have groups from companies come out just for the day, and we have people on a project that'll stay for three months. My objective was to eliminate barriers that prevented people from volunteering. So we're flexible with when you can come, and we're flexible with how long you can come. That's tremendous. So a lot of ways for us all to give and help others. And that's kind of a lot about what this season is about. David Campbell, thank you so much for joining me on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks so much, David. Enjoyed it. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.